Hello, thanks for joining us again for another episode of the Playsheet Podcast. I'm Charles and I'm here with my good friend Joe. Hey there, guys. Joe, are you fully satiated from a week of Thanksgiving football and food? Did you get involved? I didn't get involved in the food. I'm trying to limit the damage before Christmas, so none of that Thanksgiving turkey for me. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've got to say, I don't, I don't think I got involved with any pumpkin pies or anything like that. So, uh, yeah. Like, just as an aside, right, and no offence to our American listeners, but some of those Thanksgiving plates that you see on like Instagram and stuff, they look like garbage. Just all stodgy carbs with some dry turkey meat. It looks a bit of a horror show, like a dietary plate. I'm not sure if you like the look of it, Charles, but it doesn't really pull my string. I mean, for me, just save the Super Bowl and the chicken wings. That's what I'm all about. That's all I need, man. Maybe some mac and cheese as well, but the rest of it can go and do one. <laughs> anyway, food aside, before we get picked up by the Food Network, let's keep it sport related. <laughs> um, let's, I mean, just because I love talking about how horrific the Bears and the Lions are, let's discuss that game briefly. Oh, I'm glad that the second and third games on Thanksgiving night were a lot better than this one, because if this was going to set the trend for the whole night, it wouldn't have been a particularly fun Thursday. The Lions now have given us quite a few absolute stinkers this season. They, they gave us a couple of exciting games near the start. That kind of comeback that they made against, I can't recall now, but they had a game where they did a comeback. It was good. It was fun. But they were down by like 30-odd points. I think that was one of the first couple of games of the season. Look like they might be a fun team to watch, if not a good team to watch. But they've had some absolute stinkers. And I mean, you know, if ever I've seen a quarterback kind of pad their statistics out, Jared Goff, this Thanksgiving, just gone. 21 of 25. I believe something like 18, 19 of those passes were to running backs behind the line of scrimmage. <laughs> and look, I'm not having a dig at Goff here, because if that was a game plan, if that was a plays that were called, then fine. But if anyone didn't see the game and just saw his stats, it's not quite as good as it looks. Yeah, it felt like a real race to the bottom this game. <laughs> Neither team looked like they wanted to win. It was bad. I suppose... Looking at the coaches and looking at the two teams, Joe, the Lions have been in trouble for for a while now, and they're not really showing any signs of growth whatsoever. The Bears have been getting slowly worse, and this season really feels like the kind of end of the run for them and potentially naggy. Where do these teams need to go from here and what do they need to look at? I mean, is it a case of new head coach for both start again or is there anything that can be salvaged here? I think it's basically a foregone conclusion now that Nagy's going at the end of the season. Last week, we kind of weren't too sure. I think had he lost two alliance, which, you know, he could have done at stages. It, it wasn't like the, the Bears ran away with that game. It was close. It was less than a field goal that decided it. Had the Bears lost on Thursday, I think that Nagy would have been sacked in and there. I think that could have happened. I think the fact he won saved embarrassment, and it just means that he's got a chain now until the end of the season. But I, I cannot see any situation, bar them basically winning every game now on out, that he stays. There was this, I'm not sure even kind of what it was, but the media kind of created this thing that the Bears have never sacked a coach during the season, which I'm sure if you look across the other 32 teams, None of them are going to have more than, say, two or three coaches maximum sacked during the season. So it, it just became a thing. And, and it seemed they've kind of like jumped on that and they're running with that. So no, Nagy will be going. They will have to get someone else in. Who that is, 
it's probably whoever the trendiest offensive coordinator will be in a couple of weeks' time. Let's just be honest about it. Lions, tough to say. Campbell's only been in there for, what, 12 weeks now? You've got to trust that he's got some kind of process and he's trying to achieve something there. It's where the ownership kind of buys into that. Will he be a one-and-done coach? I don't think so. It wasn't like he he took over a Lions team that was successful and he suddenly made them bad. All right, yeah, they're winning fewer games than last year, but what, they finished with like a 2-14 and 14 record last year, something terrible like that? Yeah. So it's it's not like he's taken over a good team, turned them bad, and should be a one-and-done coach. He's taken over a garbage team. They're probably a little bit more garbage now, but that's sometimes what happens when you're on a journey and on that road. So... No, I think that Dan Campbell will still be around next season. Whether he survives until the end of next season, though, that's different. And I'm sure that the ownership will want to see at least signs of improvement by the midway point next year. Yeah, that makes sense. So then shifting from absolute failure and those Thursday games, moving further on into the weekend... Patriots were a team that we singled out as being high on the ascendancy. Their defense is really propelling them forward and Mac Jones is starting to click more and more on the offense. They had a really big win against the Titans this week and very important for them. Yeah, and we mentioned we mentioned how the Titans were so far ahead in the kind of AFC first seed race and the Patriots have just whittled that away in two weeks and just absolutely flipped things upside down. The Patriots, a lot of media commentators are trying to make the comparisons between this season and 2001. And that's unfair. That's, that's, that's unfair to everyone. That's unfair to Tom Brady. It's unfair to Mac Jones. It's unfair to Belichick. You can't help but feel, if not comparing it directly to 2001, this does feel vintage Patriots, as you say. It's a very strong defense, a quarterback who's not making mistakes. He might not be doing the huge big splash plays. He might not be throwing bombs 80 yards to, you know, wide receivers on fly routes. He might not be doing that. But he's very efficient and he's just doing the right thing, which of the highly vaulted quarterback class of 2021, he's the only one of that class kind of currently right now doing that. Mac Jones has been very impressive. And I think at this stage now, he's probably re-overtook Jamar Chase into the rookie of the year conversation. You got a view on Matt Charles? I know you had a bet on Jamar Chase at the start of the season. I mean, I really hope Matt gets it because you're absolutely right. I had a bet on Chase at the start of the season. Then the moment he couldn't catch non-stripey balls, I cashed out for a loss. So if Chase wins it, I'll be devastated. But going back to what you were saying about the Patriots, I, I think that's really interesting that you're saying he's a quarterback that doesn't make mistakes. He's not necessarily making those big flashy plays, but he's getting the job done. And you've seen that's how the Patriots play. Look at their run game. Quite often it's run by committee. Look at the wide receiver quality that they've had to work with over several years. You know, no major standout players. Yeah, you had Edelman who did, who did very well with Brady over a period. But they're a team that feels like that's how they play their style of football. It's not just necessarily one flashy star player that does it all. They're a team and they're about the fundamentals and they're just about if everyone does their part correctly, it all gels together. And that's that's a Belichick football team. But I think it's important to not take too much away from Mac Jones, which a lot of people did with Brady the whole time that he was in New England. 
you know, Mac Jones still finished with over 300 yards of passing in the last game. This is against the Titans with their defensive backs, people like Kevin Bayard, Jeffrey Simmons, who have been having great seasons. He finished with over 300 yards. He finished with a 2-0 touchdown to interception ratio. He finished with a passer rating of 123.2. Mac Jones played well. It wasn't just like he was in the system, just running off of play action, like people want to be kind of creating a narrative about he wasn't like that he still played well it's just he did it in a very understated way like we said without his huge big splash plays it's important to, to uh, kind of mention as well the receiving call he's got and you touched on this it's basically the same receiving call as last year Jacoby Myers Kendrick Bourne all right you've got those two tight ends there but those two tight ends had less than 10 targets between them only five receptions he spread the ball out he spread the ball out and he made it work and that's something that Cam Newton just couldn't get going last season so if you're comparing Newton, who we'll touch on again in just a second, Newton's season last season to Mac Jones. Mac Jones looks light years ahead. And I don't think that's unfair to Newton. Yes, he had his shoulder injury, but at the end of the day, he was suiting up and playing. Mac Jones has come in as a rookie, taking basically the same offense. Okay, there's a tight ends, but that's basically it. And converted this into quite an efficient machine. Yeah, absolutely. And you only need to look at, uh, I suppose, some of the criticism that was aimed at Brady when he was a Pats player and, and people tried to paint him with a very similar label as... It's a lazy narrative. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's just a lazy, lazy narrative for people who are just trying to create a story. And people will try to do this to Mac Jones now because he's ever Patriots, because this is the narrative that people just... People want to have this comparison. People want to make out that Mac Jones is going to fit into this Brady narrative, which was the wrong narrative at the time as well. There's a great article on ESPN right now talking about how Brady has basically had three Hall of Fame careers, three very distinct Hall of Fame careers, and two and a half of them were at the Patriots. He's had two and a half Hall of Fame careers basically at the Patriots, but people want to just perpetuate the story of a system quarterback. It's nonsense, and we'll try to do the same to Mac Jones. Hmm. And you mentioned there, uh, you know, comparing to Cam. Cam didn't have the best of weekends this weekend, did he? Well, he had far from the best of weekends, Charles. He actually had the worst passer rating of his career. His quarterback rating was 5.7, something abysmal like that. 98 yards total, zero touchdowns, two interceptions. Cam Newton got himself benched. There's an element of looking after him. We've mentioned how fragile he is. The game was lost when he was benched, but... An ugly, ugly performance from Cam Newton. Yeah, and that's something that I just wanted to touch on briefly, which is how much of that benching do you think was part of the game is out of control here and we might as well just save him versus actually he's having such a bad game. Let's not make it worse for him so that it dents his confidence and affects him going into future games. I think whichever way you look at it, it's a benching. Had the game been close, had he been playing well, he wouldn't have come out of that game. Yeah. So if the score was, you know, a difference of seven, a difference of 10 points, they would have left him out. So the priority there wasn't his health. The priority there was that he had played crap to get into that situation. By the time he got into that situation, all right, well, there's no point in risking him. We might as well take him out. But he's only being taken out because he's playing at standard to get benched. So it's a benching, but they will spin it, it to the sense of, you know fight another day, no need to risk him, blah, blah, blah. But it's a benching. 
Yeah, so, you know, they, they played the Dolphins this week and the Dolphins have started to heat up a little bit on the defensive side of things, but uh, they've not been an amazing team this season. And this is a game where, where Cam looked completely out of place. Do you think that this is sort of what we talked about I don't know whether it was last episode or the one before where we where we said the best way that we think Cam can be used is a bit in a similar fashion to this kind of Taysom Hill quarterback. And then they've gone out and they've run him like the Patriots did last year full time. And he can't quite cope in the same way that he struggled at the Patriots. Do you think that this is the Cam we're going to see now if they keep trotting him out for the entire game? Or do you just think it's a blip? I, I don't want to be harsh, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I just don't think that Cam has the throws anymore. I think that when you look at him statistically and the accuracy that he has on throws beyond 15 yards from a line of scrimmage, he just doesn't have that accuracy. His passer rating beyond, you know, in, in longer throws, it's just gone. And if you can take away that running threat, which he, you know, still does have, you take away that threat and... He's a quarterback who's a lot easier to defend against than back in his, you know, MVP seasons of six, seven years ago. Or I would argue, you say if you take away that threat, I would say if you overuse that threat as well, because we saw at the beginning of the game, Cam, I think they they were near the goal line and he did back to back kind of trick quarterback run plays. And it just became really obvious I couldn't figure out whether it was Cam desperate to be the hero or whether it was just a case of that they were the plays that they were running and that he thought they would work. But it feels like, as as you've mentioned, teams are maybe wising up to the fact that he doesn't have the throws left in him anymore. And so they're just defending the run against him. That's why he's more useful in those Taysom Hill type kind of situations when it's short yardage, when it's goal to go, where he doesn't have to throw the ball 20 yards where he's either got, you know, a five to ten yard pass or he uses his legs. He can still be really, really effective at. But when it's, you know, a full game situation where you've got to run a two minute drill, where you've got to, you know, hit third and twenty five, those kind of situations, I wouldn't want Cam Newton under center. I think that we said how we felt he should be played a couple of weeks ago. I still stand absolutely by that. And I think that if they continue with him as a starter, uh yeah, you know, he'll still get touchdowns he'll still score from five yards out he'll still do that but he won't win games he, he's, he's just not a full game worthy quarterback and that's partially a narrative but I feel that it's one that you can support with statistics and with his recent um, injury history yeah and then I suppose moving from one quarterback who's struggling to another Let's take a quick look at Russell Wilson and the Seahawks. Now, obviously, he had that finger situation that he's working through at the moment. But Russell Wilson has been, I would say, relied on heavily by the Seahawks over the last few years to really pull them through a lot of games. And it's just not working at the moment. What do you think the answer is there? Because obviously, there's a lot of pressure put on Russell to win these games and the big moment throws that he's quite famous for but after time that must just really wear you down and and what is it the Seahawks need to be doing differently to help Wilson well that's a can of worms question there Charles because I think that the the thing they needed to do to help him 
was to properly draft and build positions that we have neglected for so long. I'm talking offensive line, I'm talking defensive line, I'm talking defensive backs. Instead of really addressing problems, we've done silly things like go and give away two first round picks for Jamal Adams, which people might have a different opinion to what we have here, but he's an overpaid sub linebacker. That's they're using him in sub linebacker packages. He's a box safety. He got his third interception of his career on Monday night. Whoopie doo for him, but that wasn't the trade that the Seahawks should have made. Which is interesting, right? Because we spoke about this when the trade happened on the podcast last year. And I was quite excited by the prospect of Adams moving to the Seahawks and thought he could be something that adds to what they were lacking. You were very quick to point out that actually the guy has made barely any interceptions in his career to date. He is not a true safety in the sense of how most safeties are used around the league. He, as you mentioned, you know, he's, a, he's an additional linebacker most of the time. But the Seahawks now, actually, as things stand, they would pick after the Jets, except they wouldn't because they've traded their pick for Jamal Adams. So I know it's easy to criticise in hindsight, but how bad does that trade look at the moment for them? It looks so bad. And a trade like that, a trade where you're trading for a player like Jamal Adams, who I don't want to like get on his back. I don't want to criticise him because he does some things very well, but he he's probably as close as what you can have to a luxury player in the NFL, that for him to play well and for him to work with what he's doing, you need other people to be doing their job at a higher level than what should be expected. He's not giving you anything in coverage, so you need the other defensive backs to either be playing in different packages, so there's extra coverage to make up for Jamal Adams not being there, or play out their skins to basically cover for a safety who's not in the position where a safety would traditionally be most of the time. And unfortunately, the Seahawks don't have players of that quality, which is why they got absolutely scorched and burnt last season. You trade for a player like Jamal Adams when you're trying to go over the edge, where you're trying to go over the top. Like what the Rams have tried to do with the trades for Von Miller and Odell Beckham. They thought that those extra pieces would be those little bits of garnish that make them a Super Bowl team, that make them from an NFC Championship team to a Super Bowl team. The whole Seahawks organization really is basically built on sand it's built on rubbish offensive lines not good enough defensive lines and you can have the best box safety in the world on top of that but if you don't have those foundations it's pointless and that's what we've done i was glad to be right about that trade so long ago because i do recall we had a bit of a disagreement about it but uh like you say it, it, it's really really backfired in in hindsight things always look it's always easy to judge, but there were plenty of voices like mine at the time saying that that's not the trade that they should have done. Mm. And so do you think this spells rebuild for the Seahawks? And if so, do you think that that Seahawks team continues to build around Russell Wilson? Or do you think he is potentially an asset which they could look to trade to kick off their rebuild? So Russell Wilson is 33 now came into the league in 2012 so he's been around for you know 10 seasons now I think he's probably over the halfway point of his career the Seahawks are a long way from being a championship bothering team they have to rebuild a lot and they're not going to be able to do that in a short span of time because this draft is basically gone from them they have so little draft capital what do you do there's a compounding issues with what seems to be 
an underplayed fallout between Wilson and Pete Carroll. I think that there's perhaps more to that than the Seahawks have allowed out. They've done quite a good job of just playing that one down. Wilson, by all accounts, wants out. And to be honest, the Seahawks are so far away from being competitive, in my view, that they should probably take the capital from him. I think that a team like the Giants have been mentioned as one of the teams that could put up a decent package for him. The complications, of course, is that Russell Wilson has a no-trade stipulation in his contract. And he has said previously that the only three teams I think he'd want to go to were the Raiders, Cowboys, or the Saints. I think the Cowboys are quite set now. Uh, There's other two organisations, potentially. Who knows? But look, I think we could be seeing some very interesting back and forth with Wilson in the postseason this year. I think that could be one of the bigger storylines that kind of drags on and on. Hard to say yet, but look, this is the first time he's going to have a losing season. His play's clearly affected. He's taken at least five years now of just getting banged up behind a terrible offensive line. You can understand why he wants out. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So then, talking about that game, which Washington football team won in the end, that's closed the gap slightly on the Cowboys because they took the overtime loss to the Raiders this weekend. The coin lives on, Joe. The coin that has predicted the correct outcome for every single Raiders game this season at astonishing odds of less than 1% continues, carries on. But that gap's been closed. The The Cowboys lead by two wins. And we heard uh, over the weekend and early into this week that there's a bit of a COVID outbreak. I suppose you could argue continuing in Dallas because they already lost Amari Cooper uh, to COVID previously. He is due back if he's good enough to go from a from kind of fitness perspective. But they've now lost their coach, which means that Dan Quinn is going to step up. And we've all seen how he head coaches a team. Let's see if his head coaching of somebody else's team is any better. Dan Quinn is a coach who has had head coaching experience. You've also got in that coaching backroom a guy who's still healthy and, and who's not been COVIDed, John Fossil. And for people who have seen All or Nothing when we did the Rams, John Fossil is an extremely experienced special teams coach. His father was a head coach. John Fossil knows how to coach. So it's not like other orgs, and I'm looking at the Vikings, I'm looking at the Patriots, where the coordinators or the assistant coordinators are basically the coach's sons and you wonder how much real experience they have got there these guys who will be calling plays and running the team at the weekend they're pretty experienced guys and they've been around for a long time will it affect the Cowboys absolutely will affect them it absolutely will but I think that as long as they manage to leave the COVID to the coaching staff and the playing personnel don't get too affected I think this is perhaps a bigger story than it needs to be and the Cowboys won't be as badly affected as headlines are implying. Yeah, because I mean, when the story broke, it was eight members of the Dallas Cowboys are are out from from COVID and that sounds, on the face of it, absolutely horrific. But when you It sounds like it's a big problem, yeah. Yeah, but when you dive into the detail of it, it's actually uh, nowhere near as bad as, I suppose, headlines are making it out to be. But potentially one to watch out for because, as I mentioned, they are now only two ahead in that division. And Washington football team have been playing some nice football of late. 
they've suddenly got Thomas, their tight end, back into the mix from a lengthy injury. So there could be a bit of competition there. It might not be as much of a home run as people thought it could be. But it is the Saints, right? It is the Saints. And uh, the Saints have been garbage. They were garbage last week. They were really bad last week. Simeon got nothing going. If there were a team that the Cowboys have got to play with their remaining five games left, I'll probably pick the Saints out of that lineup if they've got COVID problems. I think the Cowboys should still win. And I think I'll still do it probably pretty comfortably, even despite the, the coaching personnel loss, because it's only the Saints. Yeah. And then let's end this section before we go on to our previews, continuing to talk about behind the scenes things. Uh, the stolen kit at the Atlanta Stadium. Why don't you walk us through that, Joe? Yeah, well, there seems to be a problem. There's, there's someone in the Atlanta personnel room who is basically stealing the kit of opposing teams' players and I think potentially Falcons' players as well, and then selling that on the internet. I think that Mac Jones's wrist wrap um, with his plays on it was stolen. Uh, stuff is being taken out of the locker rooms at the Falcon Stadium. Not much has really been said about this, but it's potentially huge. It's a massive breach of security. I don't know what you think, Charles, but I, I think it's quite embarrassing for the Falcons as an organisation. I think it's massively embarrassing. I mean, it's so unprofessional in a league that is always striving to be as professional as it can be. Yeah, and and when you don't have your own house in order, it is embarrassing is the right word for it. Joe, I'm I'm interested to learn more about you mentioned Mac Jones's wrist play got taken. How much information can that give to opposing teams? You know, how coded is something like that if say another team were able to get hold of it? Huge. Absolutely huge. It's basically the offensive plays. It's offensive plays, it's what routes certain players will be running, it's got audibles which are in there, it's, it's got audibles at the line of scrimmage to change a wide receiver's route. It's got enough there that if you lost that, it could totally compromise your Oh, You'd have to change all your calls, you'd have to change so much there, and it's not the kind of thing that any decent team would want to illicitly get. Because it's too much of a cheat code. It's not a competitive advantage. It's pure cheating to have something like that. Yeah, which... uh, Do you think the league will get involved soon? It feels like the kind of thing that they need to start stepping in soon to get to the bottom of this. Because this can't keep going on week in, week out. Because as you mentioned, if the theft starts getting progressively more bold and it's not just, you know, a shirt or a sock or something and it starts to become really fundamental to how teams set up then there needs to be some kind of intervention surely so i think it's something that not so much the league will should be involved with but police it's an endemic problem they have there it's mac jones's play call wristband that was the more headline piece of news but you also had jared stidham's socks for whatever sick piece of work would want them this was the scheme that got tom brady's jersey stolen when the Patriots beat the Rams in Super Bowl 54 the year before. So it's been going on for a while. It's not just an opportunistic thief who just saw it there and took it. It's organised. It's criminal. The police need to get involved because this is, it's embarrassing. It's not something that can go on. 
Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned it because I hadn't made the connection with the Brady jersey, but but that's endemic then, isn't it? You know, Atlanta love their merch. It's been going on a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. Someone loves their merch there. And they're making a lot of money from it on illicit auction sites on the internet. So a bit of an embarrassment for the league. Yeah. Okay then, Joe, why don't we move on to our previews now then? And a team that I'm particularly interested to talk about is the Bengals. They're a team that have shown flashes of brilliance this year. They've beaten some rather big teams. They've beaten some divisional rivals. But then they've also slipped up a few times and and they feel like they're in that position at the moment where it's hard to get a real fix on whether they're a proper contender when playoffs come around or whether they're just falling shy of that mark. What's your view on them? It's really hard to kind of tell at this stage. I think the win they had over Steelers was basically them showing their intent. But can we read too much into them beating the Steelers with how bad the Steelers kind of also are right now for different reasons the Steelers are in a bad spot with the Seahawks just because they've not really invested in the right places in the team the Steelers is slightly different they've had a lot of retirements recently they're gonna have a retirement of Roethlisberger they were perhaps too loyal to him keeping him in the team they've made a few wrong decisions and they perhaps haven't replaced players as quickly as they should have done Either way, though, whether it's the right reasons or the wrong reasons, the Steelers are in a bad place. So the Bengals beat them in 41-10. The fans are going to love that. It's a great stat line for them. It doesn't mean as much as it would have done two or three years ago. The Bengals have, all in all, they've got a winning record right now, but they haven't beaten, they haven't beaten great teams aside from that one win over the Ravens four or five weeks ago. That stands out as what I say is probably the only impressive win that I've seen from that team. The other wins, you know, they've beaten the Steelers twice, they've beaten the Jaguars, they've beaten the Lions, they've beaten the Jets, they've beaten the Raiders in the middle of the Raiders, having that meltdown after Gruden and in the week that was arrested. So uh, there's one real good win on that resume, but they're on course for playoffs. Now they've got two stern tests in front of them. They've got the Chargers, they've got the 49ers, the, you know, re-emerging 49ers team. If they win at least one of those games, I think that we can start to look at this Bengals team seriously. If they don't, then I think we'll see the Bengals for what they are, which is a mediocre to good team who beat teams worse than them, but who definitely have a level and aren't at that top table yet. Yeah, I think that's a really fair assessment because the the game I always keep returning to when I think that the Bengals do have something about them is that Ravens game. But you've correctly pointed out that it really is the only test that they've come up against so far this season. And I think you're right. I think what's to come is going to give us quite a good steer ahead of the playoffs. Although the Chargers are having their own offensive struggles at the moment. So it might not be quite the same test that it was, say, three or four weeks ago. But I think it will be a good kind of barometer to understand how how the Bengals are getting on. The Bengals do have an intimidating looking schedule for the final six weeks of the season. They have the Chargers, the 49ers, the Broncos, the Ravens, the Chiefs and the Browns. There's not really many easy games there. It's not pretty, is it? And and may go towards explaining why they're sat so high at the moment. Well, as you said, like I said, aside from that Ravens game, all the other teams that they've beaten are probably like 0. 0.25, 0. 0.3 teams. So let's see how it goes. But look, we're not sure about them yet. They could go either way, in my view. 
let's see what they're all about. They win against the Chargers, then you say, hey, maybe these guys are serious. Maybe they are a playoff-bound team. Yeah. We'll find out, I think. We'll have a better idea come 9 o'clock Sunday. Yeah. And then you mentioned the Steelers' woes. Big Ben, I mean, every single game I watch him, he looks so out of place. He looks slow. He's making bizarre decisions. He is making plays that look like he's he should be under pressure when there's no pressure about. It's bizarre to witness. Does it feel like the end of the line for Big Ben? I felt about the end of the line for Big Ben was about a year ago. Well, actually, I remember, yeah, last offseason, you, yeah. you said he wouldn't be coming back. And I bet the Steelers had rather listen to you well so like i appreciate you mentioning that i got the call right on uh jamal adams but i was wrong on the steelers bringing roethlisberger back and again hindsight is an easy thing but i said this at the time they should have just paid him off they should have just done an andrew luck they should have let him retire but let him keep the cash i mean everyone's happy the steelers have paid out but hey he's a guy who's bought them two super bowls and ben rides off into the sunset with a relatively intact reputation you know, 12 games of this season so far have been a car crash. It's been embarrassing. It's not nice to see a quarterback struggle like that, especially one who's, you know, been so successful in the past. It's so bad now, but it's at this point where do they even let Roethlisberger finish out the season? Would it just be better if maybe he took an L and then just called a press conference and retired then and there, which wouldn't be unprecedented? Play the final five games of a season with, you know, Rudolph or Haskins, whoever, give them a run out, see what you've got with rookies and the rest of it. But playoffs are getting more and more distant for this team. And, you know, Roethlisberger's playing so bad, he'll get hurt. Because, as you correctly said, it's his decision-making as well. It's mental. It's in his mind. You can understand the arm strength going, but some of the stupid throws, some of the bad calls he's been making, that's the most damning indictment of his downfall. Yeah, so of course they play the Ravens this week. It looks like a massive uphill struggle for them to win that game. And you'd probably say a loss puts them out of contention, really. Well, yeah. So we talked about a bad run for the Bengals for the last six games of the season. The Steelers team have the Ravens twice, the Chiefs, the Titans, the Browns and the Vikings. Oh, I don't think that they start favourite for a single one of those games. No, I agree. The Steelers, who are notoriously a bad second half of a season team in recent years, have a frankly scary look in second half of a season. The only potential for a win is perhaps if the Ravens have managed to guarantee themselves first seed by the 9th of January and run out a second string, first string team. But even with a second string, first string Ravens team, I you know, probably would still put them in favour over the Steelers. Yeah, I would tend to agree, to be honest, the way the Steelers are playing. I mean, they have put up um, stiff competition on occasion, but honestly, those games are the outlier as opposed to the rule. And uh, yeah, it would be interesting to see if Big Ben sees out the full season or not, because I'm not confident on them making playoffs. So, you know, as you mentioned, with five, four games left of the season and they're out of contention, is it worth it? It's just, is it worth it? This is one of those situations where a quarterback who's been around for so long is being allowed to do things on his own terms. But he's massively misjudged his body. He's he's massively misjudged where he is. And there's no way now, really, that he goes out on terms that were probably better than just going out last season. Even though they got knocked out by the Browns in playoffs, 
I think that most Steelers fans would probably take making playoffs and losing in the first round than what they're going to see now, probably going, I don't know, 6-11 and 11 for first losing season for Mike Tomlin. It's not good. Yeah. And then let's finish our podcast how this game week's going to finish and let's talk about the absolute game of the week, Patriots versus Bills. It's going to be an exciting one. I think it's exciting for the Bills fan base as well because I think they've spent a long time under the thumb of the Patriots and this is a real opportunity for them to see if they can stick the knife in a little bit. Well, I'm going to flip that a little bit. I think that was last season. Last season was when the Patriots were trash and Josh Allen had the season of his life last season. Josh Allen was in the MVP conversation all through the year. Last season was a season where the Bills were saying, we've been under the Patriots farm all this time. We're now going to beat the Patriots because we're the better team. It's a different nuance this season because this season the Patriots are back. The Empire strikes back and now it's the Bills, well, we've improved a little bit. How do we fare against a good Patriots side? We feel that we can compete. So it's actually kind of playing each other on equitable terms. And yeah. I think that's what makes it so interesting. I completely agree with you. But I think that's what's exciting for the Bills fan base, right? Because you're absolutely correct that they did that last season, but it didn't feel as maybe wholesome as a victory as they'd like. I suppose you take any against the Patriots if you're a Bills fan, but... Uh, you know you would if you're a Jets fan <laughs> that, that's true as well but you know they did have the quarterback situation they did feel like they're a team that had just lost Brady and they were a bit in flux as you said they've rebuilt themselves now or sort of on that pathway to it and are performing well so if they could win this this feels I would argue more important than the wins they got last year yeah and it's interesting for this point of the season as well, because whenever these two teams have home games right now, they're New England games, it's snowing from here and out, it's cold, you've always got that kind of weather advantage against most teams who visit you at this time of the year. Both of these teams are used to this kind of weather. This is home conditions for them. So there's no kind of, oh yeah, well they played good last week, but they played good against a Californian team who's coming three hours time difference and has to play in the cold. There's none of that excuses. This is just pure football team against football team, mano a mano, equitable. And I think that makes it exciting for not just Bills fans, but just all fans of a sport. So we should really see a good ding-dong battle here. It's going to be full of, what, dildos and broken tables, I assume. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I just that's, that's my football. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I'm so buzzing for this game because I like how both teams have been playing this season. I hope it's competitive. I hope it's at least a battle. And it'll be interesting because that division has been a bit devoid of competition for a while now. And it'll be good to get a proper meaty battle back. So, um, yeah, let it rain dildos in New England. (laughs) Let it rain, let it rain. So the only sad thing about this, Charles, is that it's going to be extremely, extremely late on Monday night. So it's not a beer and wings game. It's a uh, tea and biscuits one for sure. <laughs> yeah, or a Red Bull and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Pro Plus student special. Yeah, <laughs> Joe, it's been a treat as always. Really enjoyed it. I think there's some good games we can look forward to this week as well as things start hotting up towards the end of the season. Can't wait. Always fun, Charles. Speak to you next week. Speak next week.